American I had uh, was through the cinema and through the TV. And of course, it's the latter that has made the world smaller by giving us windows into lands and cultures we may never have even heard of. And now, of course, there's the internet. Within seconds of something happening the other side of the globe, there is an instant recognition, an instant awareness of it. And with all of this comes a greater awareness of other people's beliefs. And this heightened awareness has given rise to what I have called the supermarket effect. Now, I thought that we had large supermarkets in England until I came to the United States. Now, ours are small corner stores compared to what you've got over here. But think of what happens when you go to one of your mega stores to buy, say, a tube of toothpaste. Now, what happens? Well, I guess for most guys, toothpaste is toothpaste, so what the heck? But that just adds to the bewilderment of the poor fellow who is standing there with rows and rows of this stuff. How do you decide to choose between them? You've got minty flavor, you've got strawberry flavor, you've got toothpaste with whitener and extra fluoride and so on and so forth. Now, of course, one response is simply to say, it's just a matter of personal preference. Whatever works for you, whatever taste you like. They're more or less the same anyway. There may be one or two differences, but toothpaste is toothpaste. And so, in an act of desperation, our bewildered male shopper closes his eyes, reaches out his hand, and he places a gum of gel for teething babies into the shopping trolley by mistake. <laughs> now, the point I want to make is this, that the same supermarket effect can spill over to the way we approach other faiths or worldviews. Is it really the case that one religion is just as good as another? Beneath are all the same, the, the package may be different, but so what? Is it simply a question of personal preference? So going back for a moment to our toothpaste illustration, imagine that a product comes out onto the market claiming to be toothpaste. It has all the right packaging, it has fantastic marketing. But after a few weeks, people who have been using this new product discover that their teeth have become more brittle. <laughs> Far from uh, shining and, and whitening the teeth, it becomes terribly discolored. In fact, on closer inspection, what is found to be in the tube is nothing but gelatin with a few additives. Now no one is going to say, or toothpaste the same, Whatever works for you. In fact, this may be a class action. I don't know. Mark knows about these things. <laughs> the fact is, some things don't work because they don't pass the test of what the product is meant to be. And furthermore, those products which are genuine toothpaste don't all fare the same. Some are better or worse than others. Now, here's the question. 
of all the myriad of, of different religions and beliefs which exist, including Buddhism and Christianity. How do you actually go about deciding between them? Are there criteria which might help us to make informed decisions? Or do we simply fall back on the pervading view of, well, whatever works for you? Well, let me tell you there are. And you've got to, be at, you've got to begin by asking, what is the purpose of religions or belief systems? The answer is that they are attempts to make sense out of life, give us access into reality, and to help us make our way through life, to negotiate our way through life in a meaningful way. You might want to think of them as mental maps. And these mental maps help us to orientate ourselves in the world. Now, there are four big questions which worldviews, religions, have to come to terms with. The first one is, where do I come from? The question of origins. The second is, who am I? The question of significance. The third is, why is the world in such a mess? The question of evil. But the next one is, is there a future? And here we're talking about the question of purpose. As Professor David Wolf put it, belief systems are projects which are concerned with making sense out of total experience. Making sense out of total experience. Now, given this, there are criteria interwoven into all beliefs by which we can determine their strengths and credibility. Whether they demand our assent and so are worth believing. The, what I call the six C's. First, consistency. That the assertions being made don't actually contradict each other. That's a negative criterion. Then there's coherence that the belief actually hangs together in such a way that the different elements, the different components, support and strengthen one another into a coherent whole. Then there is comprehensiveness. That is, the belief must, in the words of one Gestalt therapist, gobble up experience. That is, they cover reality, all of reality, and they don't just leave out the, the rough edges, the, the difficult questions, such as the problem of suffering. But then they must be congruent. That is, they must have a good fit with reality, and therefore provide the mental map which accounts for and explains what we experience. In other words, the belief must have explanatory power. For example, why do we feel so significant and yet long for more? I think that is a question the atheist cannot answer. But then they've got to be competitive. You've got to put your belief into the marketplace of ideas and a worldview must compete with and be capable of refuting other beliefs. And so here, the law of non-contradiction, that something cannot be A 
and not A at the same time actually applies between worldviews and not just within them. And this is absolutely vital when it comes to the question of religious pluralism. They can't all be right. But then there's commitment. People have got to be able to follow the worldview. I can tell you any air-brained idea can be argued, but not every belief can be lived. Now, given that contrast as the mother of clarity, what I want to do now is to use those four big questions, those six criteria, to demonstrate some of the differences between Buddhism and Christianity. And so show you why I'm not a Buddhist and could never be a Buddhist, but why I am a Christian. So let's take a look at the conceptual maps provided by Buddhism and Christianity and see how they fare in helping us make sense out of total experience. And in doing this, what I want to do is to come in at the level of underlying presuppositions. That is, basic core beliefs about things that matter. And here we will see that no matter what superficial similarities there are between Buddhism and Christianity. For example, both have historical founders. Both founders gathered around themselves disciples to propagate their teaching. Both have their teachings eventually gathered together in books, the sutras, the Pali Canon, and the Gospels. Nonetheless, there are fundamental and irreconcilable differences such that they both cannot be right. You've got to make a choice. Okay, first question then, dealing with reality. Where do I come from? Question of origins. Now, as we saw last week, Buddhism, in its varying form, is at one with traditional Hinduism in being monistic. Unity alone is real. So what then are we to make of the diversity we experience day by day? That a chair is different to a table. A dog is different to a cat, and so on. Well, of course, monism's answer is that those kinds of distinctions are maya. They're illusion. Shankara, Hindu, not a Buddhist, speaks for all monists when he says that the world is maya, but is taken as real. In the same way, a man mistakes a rope for a snake, or a mother of pearl for silver. Now, I want to suggest to you that the Buddhist understanding of reality falls at the hurdle of congruence, accounting for what we experience. And this shows itself in two practical outworkings. First, the operation of modern science. Now, in Buddhism, there really is no motivation for science, studying what is out there and seeing how things function in terms of cause and effect and the like. Because according to this worldview, at bottom, there really is nothing out there. It's Maya. It's like a dream. And I don't know about you, but I find it very difficult to analyze my dreams. Things do not appear in a sort of consistent way. Now, whereas we've seen with Buddhism, the, the, me, the, the key to meaning 
his detachment, as exemplified by the Buddha himself when he detached himself from his family. Christianity comes in at things differently. It comes in at the level of involvement. Now, in his 1925 Lao lectures, the non-Christian and uh, co-author with the atheist Bertrand Russell in his Principia Mathematica, Ian Whitehead, argued that you had to have a sufficient basis for believing that the scientific enterprise would be worthwhile. And it was Christianity alone which supplied it. Now, of course, Bertrand Russell, being the atheist, hated him for saying that. But he was right. He pointed out that the image of gods that you find in other religions, especially in Asia, are too impersonal or too irrational to have sustained science. Now, obviously, if you believe that the gods were fickle and kept changing their minds so that things would be like this one day and different another day, then you could never engage in science. Because science is dependent upon things being stable, things not being changed at whim. And what is more, if what is perceived as the world is in a state of constant flux, as we saw last week, uh, Gautama's term was anika, then stability is denied. And that, again, is absolutely vital for science's predictive element, that if this happens, then that will happen. Now, the God of the Bible provides such stability. Now, here's Professor Rodney Stark making the same point. The rise of science was not an extension of classical learning, Aristotle and Plato and the like. It was the natural outgrowth of Christian doctrine. Nature exists because it was created by God. To love and honor God, one must fully appreciate the wonders of his handiwork. Moreover, because God is perfect, his handiwork functions in accord with immutable principles. They don't keep changing. By the full use of our God-given powers of reason and observation, we ought to be able to discover these principles. And he's right. And this brings us to the next problem with Buddhistic monism. How do you distinguish reality from fantasy? Now, if the world we experience is in some way illusory, then how do you distinguish between our experiences, which are considered to be objective and therefore real, and those which are subjective and maybe due to psychosis. This is how Lao Tse puts it. If when I was asleep, I was a man dreaming I was a butterfly, how do I know when I'm awake, I'm not a butterfly dreaming I am a man? Now the answer, of course, it is not possible to know. Not from the standpoint of monism. But also from the standpoint of monism, it is a matter because we're all one. Except, of course, at the, practical letter, at the practical level, it matters a lot. If you're dealing with someone who's got psychosis. Now, by way of contrast, the biblical account of reality is radically different. 
And it does fit in with what we experience and what we intuit, what's intuitive. You see, in Genesis 1, God presents himself as the unique, personal, absolute, sovereign God, who by his royal decree and word brings into being a world, a universe. He orders things just so. They are good, as we would say, fit for purpose. And as such, this God is transcendent. He is holy other. He is holy. He is different to his creation. But he's also personal. And he is imminent and intimately involved with, in, and through his creation. He's not abandoned it. Now, the biblical account also explains the relationship between the one and the many. What the philosophers call the universal and the particulars. While we not only have the universal, say, the concept of dogginess and particular dogs like poodles and Alsatians and Dachshunds and so on. And this is because God, within the oneness of his own being, is in a relationship of three persons. There's unity, the one God. Remember the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. We may say oneness. And yet you have the diversity of the Father loving the Son, the love, Son loving the Father, united together by the love of the Holy Spirit. And creation reflects that. And what is more, and this is so important, it is a creation. It is an objective reality. It is not a dream. Hence, it is possible to do science to classify things, to analyze things, to help people who are deluded because there is a standard by which we can judge the real from the fantastic. Next question, who am I? Question of significance. Now, according to Buddhism, the who, and I don't mean the British 1960s pop band, the who is an illusion. We are more of a what or an it. And uh, remember from last week, uh, this was uh, shown so clearly by uh, the Buddha's Eureka moment under the bow tree when he said, not I am liberated, but it is liberated. And so in answering the question, where do I come from or who am I? The two have the same root answer. We are an illusory manifestation of the one greater reality. In Mahayana Buddhism, we are an extension of the divine essence into the world of diversity, like a dream or a dance. The promoter of uh, Western Zen, Alan Watts, wrote this, that God entranced himself and forgot his way back. So that now he feels himself to be a man playing guiltily at being God. Or using Watts Zen language, the true self, God with a small g, Brahman, and the I is the not-self. And the not-self is in bondage to the wheel of samsara, of existence. And that I, that it, needs to escape the wheel by meditation in order to merge with this absolute. 
So within this framework, freedom is not freedom to be oneself, it is freedom from oneself. In the words of D.T. Suzuki, the great Zen teacher, the goal of Zen is not incarnation, it is excarnation. Now, interestingly enough, it was a clergyman, an English clergyman, Charles Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll, who captured this thought well in his looking, uh, through the looking glass. Speaking of the dreaming king, Tweedledee says, and if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? Where I am now, of course, says Alice. Not you, Tweedledee retorts contemptuously. You'd be nowhere. Why, you're only a sort of thing in his dream. And Tweedledum added, if that there king was to awake, you'd go out bang, like a candle. And that's what you have. You'd go out bang like a candle. The British historian Arnold Toynbee captures the essential nihilistic, uh, despairing quality of Buddhism and much Eastern mysticism when he writes, we might think of a human person as being a wave that rises or falls or a bubble that forms and bursts on the immortal sea's surface. But if that is what we are, we have to live and die without ever knowing in what relation we stand to the ultimate reality that is the source and destination of our being in our ephemeral human life on earth. He's right. Now here, Buddhism falls foul of the comprehensiveness criterion. Because instead of explaining human, uh, human personality, it explains it away. And this, in turn, runs into the criterion of coherence. Because if there is no self which needs to escape from the wheel of samsara, then who is it who is doing the meditating in order to escape into, eventually, nirvana? But it's at this point that the criterion of commitment is strained to breaking point. And uh, this, I think, is poignantly illustrated by the Japanese poet, Kabayashi Isa, normally known simply <clears throat> me, by his pen name, Isa, which means cup of tea. All five of his children died before he was 30. And then his young wife died. After one of those deaths, he went to his Zen master and asked him for an explanation for such suffering. The master reminded him that the world was dew. Just as the sun rises and the dew evaporates, so on the wheel of suffering, sorrow is transient. Life is transient. Man is transient. He said involvement in the passion of grief and mourning tells of a failure to transcend the moment of selfish egotism. That was the Zen philosophical answer. But let me tell you, on returning home, Issa wrote a poem which literally runs, the dewdrop world, the dewdrop world it is, and still, although it is. 
or putting it more simply, the world is due. The world is due. And yet, and yet. Now, friends, the biblical view of human beings is much more affirming. And it is at one with our deepest experiences, especially when we face anguish like Issa. We are made in God's image. And we are made with purpose, and we are made with dignity. Genesis 1 and 2 presents human beings as God's vice regents, like king priests, with capacities which enable us to exercise a loving stewardship in his world under him. And we are individuals, we are real, but we're made for relationships, male and female, and ultimately relationship with our maker. And it is supremely in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see all of these things most clearly. All that we are meant to be, like a son in a loving, obedient relationship with his father, as Adam, as Israel, as David, were meant to be but failed, Jesus is. And in this one person, the absolute God and the relative man became united forever. And so those who put their trust in him by becoming united to him in faith by the Holy Spirit become united to him. And I tell you, that gives his followers quite a distinctive perspective to suffering and death than any of the followers of the Buddha. Let me give you this Christian experience of suffering. And you compare it to that of Isa. Norman Anderson went to Cambridge University. That's the second university in England. He went to Cambridge University in the 1930s. And that is where he met his future wife. He became very involved in the uh, student evangelical movement, the KQ, which I guess would be equivalent to your varsity. Then after graduating with the first, he went to Egypt as a missionary where he studied Arabic. Then during the uh, Second World War, he was uh, recruited by British intelligence. Well, after the war, he came back to Britain and eventually rose to become professor of oriental law and director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies at the University of London. Now, Norman Anderson wrote many, many fine Christian books, including a little booklet called The Evidence for the Resurrection, The Evidence Examined by a Lawyer. And this has been used by God to bring umpteen people to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was eventually knighted by Her Majesty the Queen, and... Sir Norman and his wife had three children, all very fine Christians. His first daughter became a medical missionary in what was then the Belgian Congo, present-day Zaire. And during the violence which erupted there during the Simba uprising, she was gang-raped. She came home. Eventually, she went to California in order to do some advanced study in medicine with the intention of going back to the Congo. 
while she was there, she tripped down a flight of stairs and drowned in her own spittle. The second daughter died in circumstances scarcely less bizarre. The only son, Hugh, was a brilliant scholar at Cambridge. He gained a distinguished first, which is the highest award that can be given. And even in his undergraduate days, he was being tipped as a future prime minister of Great Britain. He was that good. Hugh died of brain cancer at the age of 21. Tell me, as Christian parents, how do you deal with that? How does a Buddhist deal with that? Well, we know from the example of Isa. Now, let me tell you what Sir Norman said on the broadcast on the BBC a few days after his son had died. After, he, after explaining why he himself was convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead, he said, On this I am prepared to stake my life. In this faith my son died after saying, I'm drawing near my Lord. I am convinced he was not mistaken. You see, no disappearing into the deathless lake of Nirvana. But because God has made an objective real world into which God entered as a real person and died a real death and was buried in a real grave and was raised bodily from that grave. So Norman and his son had something which the Buddhists could never ever have. It's called hope. As Dr. Os Guinness Riley entitles one of his chapters in his very good book on suffering, Nirvana is not for egos. And that deals with the fourth question of purpose. There is one. There's no future. So it brings us to the next question, suffering. Why is the world in a mess? Now, as we saw last week, the Buddha saw dukkha, anguish, as being uh, lying at the heart of the human predicament. And uh, this, in turn, is caused by samudaya, craving or desire. So to use sort of slightly philosophical language, the real problem, the human predicament, is metaphysical. It's, it's to do with our being. And it's from this that we need some kind of releasing from the illusion of mire of which anguish is a part. But what is more, salvation is something we, in some form, are capable of achieving. Escaping the wheel of samsara by meditation and things like that. Now, if this is the case, then... The suffering, even inflicted on uh, pain by someone else, can't be considered evil. Because at rock bottom, it's illusory. And all illusions, like bad dreams, may not be pleasant, but you can hardly call them immoral. And with the concept of self-suffering, it's not so much explained by Buddhism, it is explained away. 
But as Issa found, this is hardly satisfying and it kicks against what we experience. And yet and yet, in the face of the Holocaust, in the face of 911, in the face of, 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 of abused children throughout the world, are we simply to say this is just due? It's illusory? Is not suffering genuinely real and in some case to be deemed evil? Let me tell you something. A few years ago, I was on a speaking uh, tour in, in South Africa. And one night, uh, my host were taking me into the middle of Pretoria. And we stayed there. We stopped at an intersection. They said to me, do you know what happened here the other week? I said, no, tell me. They said, well, there was a carjacking. A gang took the car and the occupants. The occupants were a mother, a grandmother, and a baby. They shot the mother, and they raped the grandma and the baby. Now, don't you tell me that's due. Don't tell me that there is not a God who heard those cries and who cares, and who one day will ensure justice will be done. And so while Buddhism, you see, arose out of confrontation with suffering and death in the experience of the Gautama, it's hardly a satisfactory solution. Now, friends, you contrast this with a biblical view. And here we see the heart of the human prediction is not suffering, but sin, which in some ways occasions it. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that every individual item of suffering is caused by specific sins. Because Jesus saw that error off when he healed the man born blind in John 9. You remember? The disciples saw this poor man and said, who sinned, him or his parents? Looking for some kind of cause, like karma. And Jesus says, neither. And that he demonstrates that there was a higher purpose and he heals the man, and so demonstrates God's power and compassion. And neither is death considered an illusion for the Christian. It's not an illusion, it's an enemy, which Jesus came to defeat, as well as being a reminder that we live in a broken world, we live in a cursed world, we live in a damned world. In short, our problem is not metaphysical as in Buddhism. It is moral. And so if there's to be any salvation, it must address the moral problem. And the salvation must come from outside of us, not from within us. And what is more, if suffering is a result of rebellion, then it is in reconciliation that true healing will be found. And that includes the Christian hope, not of the disappearance of self into an impersonal nothingness, but the redemption of the self into a new heaven and a new earth. And it is at the cross, the place of great anguish, great suffering, that death is defeated, the sting of death is drawn, and the moral demands of the law are met. God's justice has been satisfied by Jesus' substitutionary atoning death. And his resurrection 
is the guarantee that the curse has been reversed. And so enabling all those who put their trust in him will experience forever what lies at the heart of the universe, which is Trinitarian love. So to conclude, we've seen that the problem of suffering was the instigator of Buddhism, spurring God on to his quest for enlightenment. His solution, detachment. In Christianity, sin is the root cause of our dilemma, bringing suffering and alienation in its wake. God's solution, involvement. The incarnation of God, not the excarnation of man. And it is at the cross, which above all things creates the great gulf between Buddhism and Christianity. The difference, I think, has been well highlighted by the Christian writer, Dr. John Stott. He says this, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune from it? I have entered, entered many Buddhist temples in different ancient countries and stood respectfully before a statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've turned away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet. Back lacerated. Limbs wrenched. Brow bleeding from thorn pricks. Mouth dry and intolerably thirsty. Plunged in God-forsakenness. That is the God for me. He laid aside immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. And friends, that is literally the crucial difference between Buddhism and Christianity and explains why I am not a Buddhist, but thankfully I am a Christian. I've given you some points for home, but I think it'd be appropriate if we just end with a prayer. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we thank you for the cross. We say that not as a cliche, but as a profound expression of our wonder and our gratitude and our amazement that you are not a God who is detached 
but a God who is involved, even to the point of Calvary. And you do this for us. And Lord, we thank you for the resurrection and for what is to be. So Lord, we pray that these things will become more deeper, more meaningful, more richer in our lives day by day. And that each time we'll go back to the old, old story. For we know that in heaven, we will spend eternity thanking you for it. Mm -hmm.